So I'm really thrilled to be here. I've actually elbowed in a slot in the preaching rota because it wasn't meant to be here. It was meant to be my lovely wife um, who's due to speak this morning. But I, I don't know quite how to express how much I've wanted to... You know when you want to do something but you don't really know until someone mentions it and you think, oh my word, I was really excited. We're talking the other evening about things you might want to do. And uh, we're just talking about, you know, different things that people do when they get into their 50s and you start to worry about your age and you try and prove you're still young. So that was the general chat. And someone had said about balloons, oh, I'd never want to go in a balloon. And suddenly I found this whoosh of, I would love to go in a hot air balloon. And it was one of those things, obviously, that I've seen the programs and I've seen them off in the distance, you know, and see them all rising. And that's something that's obviously built up and I didn't realize how much... I wanted to go up in a balloon until we're having this chat last weekend. And what I'm talking about today has that similar sort of feeling inside me. Of It's something that I've lived with for so long. I've brought, um, I've brought some books here, and uh, just to let you all in. So I'm talking about boundaries, okay? Now, what I'm asking is that everyone knows about boundaries, we think. Um, God's revealing so much more, and it's such a healthy tool. So what I'm asking this morning is you listen with fresh ears, um, if you think you know it, hopefully you do, but I think God's revealing some more stuff to, to help sharpen it. But I've been you know, loving this book um, written by two American um, psychologists, Cloud and Townsend, and of course they do the book, and then you get boundaries in dating, and boundaries in marriage, and boundaries with children, and boundaries with teens. Um, but it's something that Jan and I have got the benefit from and used in our pastoring for many, many years. And, and so I feel I've lived with this, <clears throat> excuse me, for a long time. And then I thought, this really is something I think God wanting to help us with as a tool in growing freedom in our culture and healthy relationships. So I was really excited, but then equally daunted. How on earth do I convey in some meaningful, helpful, um, sensible way something that has, has been on the inside for so long? So, uh, so bear with me. And I don't know if I gave David a piece of paper to type in. Um, just with uh, what my, the, the main message about what I'm uh, going to talk around this morning. Um, so really, I'm going to talk around this and want to, to keep reminding you that when we're talking about boundaries, um, it's always in the context of love. And what triggered it is a couple of weeks ago, I was speaking on about um, God and the priority of love in, in the heaven environment. And so we've always got to remember that the context, the whole atmosphere is about love. The issue is about identity and the goal are healthy relationships that lead to increased freedom amongst us. So that's going to stay up there as a sort of spine, if you like, and I'm going to talk around that. Um, but it was great for me to be able to talk um, a couple of weeks ago, I think it was three weeks ago, um, and uh, I, sadly I don't think it was recorded, so um, it's, it's not on the website, but uh, I really enjoyed it. And uh, so... <laughs> I, I thought it was great. And I was talking about um, the fact that we have choices and how God didn't stick Adam and Eve in the garden and say, don't touch the tree, and by the way, I've put you know, a 30-foot you know, chasm around it and nasty dragons and barbed wire, and you can't get anywhere near it anyway. It was a real choice, and all the way through that choice that Adam and Eve had still is the, the, the life that we live. Everything you know, involves a choice, and we have a choice. And what I was saying um, was that the context is love. God's atmosphere is love. And when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He said, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and your mind and your soul. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And we're talking and recognizing that love is God's environment and love comes from God. And I read this verse from 1 John 4, 19 to 21. I'm going to read this out to you. We love because he first loved us. And it's so important that we remember that, that trying on our best effort to love is always going to end up in burnout and failure. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar, says the Bible. For he, do, he who doesn't love his brother, whom he can see, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Um, and James called this the, the royal commandment, that um, you love your neighbor as yourself. Um, that phrase 
actually started in Leviticus. You thought, I thought that was part of Jesus' teaching, but actually Leviticus 19 verse 18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So just emphasizing what's obvious, but I think we keep, need to keep reminding is that everything in God's world involves love and everything that we want to strive to, to do well um, must emulate that. So I was really just looking at that, about this phrase, love your neighbor as yourself. And so unpacking a bit about what love means, and Jesus actually didn't say too much detail. Um, and I think he sort of just said, love your neighbor. And it's, it's obvious when you do it. And if you think of love as a choice, it's either you love or you're operating from fear and self-protection. Then once you start to reach out and look for the, uh, the benefits of the other person, then it becomes more obvious what, G- what Jesus was talking about. A neighbor Really, the rest of the New Testament talks about one another, um, and your neighbor is that person that you're near. So whether it's the person you live next to, work next to, go to school next to, happen to be next to on the bus when you're shopping in town, your neighbor is the person that comes across you. But what I'm really struck by is that Jesus was saying, love your neighbor as yourself. And so here's a real tension, and I'm wanting to look at this boundary issue and how do we do that. If we love our neighbor, and that means giving ourselves to someone, and yet we've got to love ourselves, which means looking after our needs, how do we get that right? Um, because we can't love others if we don't love ourselves. It really is a as. You can do some good things for a while, but is that really love? You can express nice things for a while, but I actually did a Bible study search on the word nice. How many times does the word nice appear in the Bible? Anyone? (laughs) Not one. So it is not being nice. I release you now from being nice to one another. (laughs) But I'm calling you to love one another. So there you go. So we're looking at the how do we balance this loving one another and loving yourself. And we all know times when we've got it right and times when we haven't, times when we've tried our best and what we've got back is, is pain and, and, uh, and anguish. There are many, many pitfalls in loving um, one another and in balancing our needs with the needs of our, our, labors, uh, our neighbors. But emphasizing what we read from 1 John 4, that we can love because God first loved us. So as we receive Father's love, that makes the whole thing much easier. So remember that. So the context is love. Okay, so I'm looking at boundaries, and as I've said Um, This is something I've lived with for a long time. I've been a Christian for 32 years, 33 coming up. Sorry, my style coach on the front here is helping me have a drink and put the glass down. Um, So I've been a Christian for 32 years, as I said. I've been a doctor for 28 years. I work as a GP on the south side. And it really is amazing how many people suffer from poor boundaries and how many heartaches and problems I've come across um, in my own life as well as in others. Um, And boundaries, understanding how to use boundaries well, um, really enables us to love well and also provides safe place for me and safe place for us so that we can flourish and grow into the people God's intended us to be. So as I said there, the goal is healthy relationships which lead to freedom. We could put so many goals in there. The goal, all, goal also is that we grow up into the full stature, into the maturity, into the destiny and, and calling that God's got for us. And we need to have this idea that for an environment to be healthy, it means that I flourish and you flourish and each of us be the best me that we can. And we do that while managing to hold on to each other and not, and not blow each other out of the water. So my plan is to live my life for the long run, and that's the other thing that helps us. We are all learners. None of us have got this right, and what we know is good, what we'll look back on and say, my word, how did I know so little back then? Um, And so we've really got to see that this is uh, a lifelong process. Um, My standing joke is that I'm about halfway through, so as I said, I'm in my early 50s. I'm fortunately forgetting exactly which number in the 50s, but... uh, I'm planning to live way, way longer than this. So uh, you young ones have got to get your running shoes on and uh, run hard to catch up. Um, but my goal is not just that I get there and I make it and I can hear that father's commendation, well done, good and faithful servant, you know, you've run the race. But I want to see all my natural children and spiritual children, natural grandchildren to come and uh, 
you know, one's on the way, um, and uh, spiritual grandchildren. And I want us all to be in that place where we're all flourishing and fulfilling our destiny. So there you go. So as I say, I've been around a while and I've seen lots of burnout. And it really is something that we all recognize and, uh, you know, we all come and lots of different things happen to us. And it really sort of surprises us, I think, because Christians live in this sometimes la-la land where, you know, suddenly you're a Christian, that means everything's okay. And you see what Jesus did, and he was okay, so we just do what Jesus did, and, and it'll be fine. And I can just give and give and give, and I can do what I, you know, I know I should do, and do all these amazing things, and surely it'll be fine, and I'll be happy, and everyone will be happy. But it doesn't quite work out like that, does it? It doesn't quite seem to, oh, what went wrong? Jesus, you managed to do this. How come I didn't? Um, because we, we just look at this, Jesus went around doing good, but we forget that Jesus often took, him away to, took himself away to the secret place and, uh, and, and you know, drew from Father, and he just had that intimate fellowship with Father and Holy Spirit that enabled him to do that. And I've just got a little sort of scenario here just to illustrate what good, well-meaning Christians can do so terribly wrong. Um, and you come home from work and you find that the kids are arguing, the house is in chaos, there's no food in the kitchen, and your partner, and I was careful to use partner, it could be a husband or it could be a wife, not pointing any fingers, um, your partner's on the phone, oh sorry dear, Nancy's had a bad day and she needs a chat. So you order pizza, you get the kids in the bath and put them to bed, and uh, the chat with Nancy carries on, and then lo and behold, the small groups arrives because someone had a cold and you couldn't say no and you had to say, okay, well, they can come around to our house. Small group happens and eventually they all leave except for one person who's been quiet all evening and uh, he sidles up to you and says, can I stay with you tonight? My wife's left me for another woman and she's locked me out of the house. And while you're just wondering what to do um, and how to help this poor chap, suddenly Nancy arrives with a similar tale of woe. And then the kids wake up because of all the chaos and the noise. I don't know. And so, is that what it means to be a Christian, just to constantly give and give whatever? Or actually, is that a train wreck waiting to happen? And uh, I think it's important that we see that we have to be healthy in how we deal with situations that come across. That isn't a demonstration of the kingdom of heaven. Um, it's not that doing any of those things is wrong. It's not that we have to be rigid and ruthless in what we do. But there are some questions that need to be asked about that scenario. Um, did they choose to do that together, or did that happen to them? Was that couple making a positive decision to help, or were they just allowing people to happen at them? Was it full of faith? Was the ex energy and emotional you know, trauma that expended, was that something that they'd counted the cost of and made a decision, yes, we can do this, we can believe God? Was it sustainable? Um, and did they agree before committing the family time and the family resources to meeting the needs of others? So who pays the price for my decisions? And in a family, you can quite easily see that if you're burnt out, then your nearest and dearest gets the, the thick end of the wedge. But it can be equally true if you're single and you just think, oh, well, it doesn't matter because, you know, I just do what I want. But how good, are your, how good are your relationships? And do your friends get Mr. Grumpy or Mr. I'm too tired to be bothered? You know, are you there for people or are you just burnt out and not able to participate in what's going on? So we really have to ask our questions and look at our lives. Does my work, does my ministry, do my hobbies, do how I give my time and energy prioritize what are really my priorities? Does it prioritize my relationships? Is it reflecting what God's um, looking for in me. And so we see this cycle of burnout so often. Um, people volunteer out of a good heart. They don't set good boundaries, so they end up being overloaded. They don't know when to say no because surely they've said yes, so they have to say yes to everything. They're overloaded, they get burnt out, and then they think, I just can't do this. And so they withdraw, and actually lots of people come um, and you, you come across them, oh yes, I used to do this and I used to do that, but I don't anymore. And it's like, there's either throw yourself into everything option, leading to burnout, or I just can't do that. And then you feel a failure and you feel there are lots of great people, but I'm not one of them. Jesus is amazing and I'll just sit and wait until it's time to get to heaven. And, and that's not a great cycle to be in of just the, the, the volunteer, poor boundaries, overload, burnout, and withdrawal. And then we all just... It's me in my small corner and you in yours. 
So we've got to ask this question, is it right for a Christian to say no? Jesus only gave away what he had. He spent lots of time fellowshipping with the Father, lots of time looking after himself. And he only did what he saw the Father do. So he didn't do everything, but he was looking to Father. What are you doing in this situation? And that's very helpful. might feel I'm dotting around a bit, but I'm just sort of laying a few foundations before I talk a bit more specifically about boundaries. One of the things I wanted to just emphasize is what love looks like. We too easily confuse love and need. And when we see need and we try and meet that, that, that need, we think, well, that must be love. But it's learning to see people as God sees them and to tap into Father's view on things and follow what he's doing. There's so many times where we try to help people only to realize that God's actually waiting for something. So God deals with us very graciously. But sometimes he says something and then he waits for a response. We're not very good at doing that. If someone doesn't immediately respond, we sort of badge them and harass them. And then they say, look, back off, sunshine. Or we just say, oh, I'll do it for you then. And we sort of take over. Whereas God doesn't do that. So we've got to be smarter in the way that we deal and help with one another. And that's often just tuning into what Father's saying. And sometimes God has got his training ground. God has sort of said, I'm here. All my resources of heaven are available but he's actually waiting for a request. He's waiting for us to ask. He's waiting for us to recognize our need. Often we don't see that there is a problem, and until you know you've got a problem, you can't look for help with a problem. And once we've found what the problem is, then look into him for, for the answer. And so we've got to be smart in tuning in and not immediately reacting. And there's another verse. David, could you put the other verse up? That's really helped me in thinking about how do we do things, that we don't have rules that are automatic. Um, but this is one of my favorite verses, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 14. We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, and help the weak. Be patient with them all. Now, that really is just, if all you remember is that one verse, that tells you how to deal with everybody in the world. There are some people who are weak, they actually need help. They can't do it themselves. You can encourage them, you can tell them, or you can even start to admonish, which is that lovely Bible word. Other versions say rebuke. So you can give them a good slap, give them a kick at the backside, you know, say get on with it. But they're weak. They need help. They can't. And we have to discern some people actually are unable. Some people do need our help. But then some people, and this is perhaps the majority of people, can do it, but have learned the I can't, and they've lived with this negative self-image, poor image of God, don't believe in, in God's goodness. And so they just come into this, oh, woe is me, I wish I could, and they sit there. And they need encouragement, they need strengthening, they need believing in and supporting and upholding, and say, so you can do this. And to help someone who is timid or faint-hearted actually reinforces the negative. It reinforces the fact that actually you are weak and hopeless, and the only chance is for everyone to bail you out all the time. So discerning the difference between who needs help and who needs encouragement is very, very important. And then there's the idle. Other, other versions use that unruly. If you help the idle, will that make them less idle? If you encourage the idle, you know, come on, son, you can get out of bed. Yes, yes, yes. You know, is that going to help someone? Actually, some people need pretty firm words. I had to look up what um, the, the Bible, not the Bible, the dictionary says um, to warn or reprimand firmly, um, to urge earnestly. So it's a bit nicer than a slap, um, but, uh, which is a shame because I was hoping that the word slap was in the dictionary there. Um, <laughs> It's what you feel, isn't it? Um, but it's, nonetheless, it's, it's firm and insistent. It's not, you know, a quick, oh, well, I did ask him to, and he didn't do it. Um, it really is, you know, admonishing. It's sort of, you, you need to do this, and putting it very firmly in their court. Um, so really helpful to think about how we deal with one another. There are lots of Christians who get this wrong, and actually, when you think about helping in third world context, Aid agencies are much smarter than most Christians, and they've realized that if you give someone a fish, then you're going to have to give them a fish the next day, and the next day, and the next day. If you teach them to fish, 
then they can start to look out for themselves. And so teaching someone how to meet their own needs empowers them and actually honors them because it says you are a person who has the right to your own um, ability to meet your own needs and we are going to strengthen you to do what you can do rather than keep you as a weak and needy person and make ourselves feel better by always bailing you out. So loving well shows respect and value for other people. Okay. I was just thinking about how do we value and just sort of the phrase that came to me, loving someone well allows them to be all that God intended them to be. And we've got to keep that as our focus. Um, And one way we can do that is reminding someone. So instead of encouraging the faint-hearted there, reminding someone of who they are, you remind them of their natural strengths, you can remind them of their past successes. But most importantly, you can remind them who they are as a child of God, and you can remind them of all the resources of heaven. So loving well is not meeting need. I think that's my point I hope I'm hammering home here. You know, just doing stuff for someone is basic level help, but it's not really loving well. And we've got to get smarter at tuning into what is this person's need? Why are they in the mess that they're in? And what's the best way to help them, which actually might be, you know, the admonish, kick at the backside, choose your word. Okay. But as we value one another and as we see the, the good in one another, we can start to sort of choose different, uh, different approaches. And I've written down here that we have to learn how to respect people, even plonkers, even people who don't, on the surface, look like they deserve. They're still people who are children of God. They're still those who are the object of Father's affections. So we have to learn how to respect everyone, even when it's not as, as obvious or easy. Okay, so love gives an opportunity to grow and develop. And by denying people opportunities to meet their own needs or to face their own responsibilities, we're actually stunting their growth by helping someone who isn't weak, by helping someone who's timid or someone who's unruly, you're actually denying them opportunities to grow and to find Father faithful, to find the resources of heaven when they need it. And you keep people in their weak and and stunted state, which really is when you think of it like that, because you think, well, I'm saying no to someone. Surely that's a bad thing. Surely Christians should never say no and only say yes. Well, my contention is, is that if you don't say no to some people, you're actually keeping them small and weak and um, ineffective and stopping them growing into all God's got. So, can David, can I have the first slide back again? So, saying that context is love. It's got to come out of a heart of love. If you just, you know, that admonishing has got to come out of a heart of love. If it's not, then it really is just your spiky shoes and a boot. Um, You know, you've got to have the the atmosphere of love. But the issue is identity. It's having a good boundary means that I'm more aware of me and you're more aware of you. And together we can flourish and grow together. And it really is our identity that helps make this work. Setting boundaries starts with me needing to be clear on me. I need to know who I am and what I need if I'm going to give you good information to, to have a boundary of what's, what's right and proper. Do I know how Father sees me? Do I know what is mine to do? Um, and then am I brave enough to actually give you good information that allows you to, to understand that and to work with that? As I become clearer on who I am, and as I look to Father, and as I create a safe place for me to flourish, it actually can then remind you who you are. So as I grow more clear and better in the, you know, having boundaries, it's not a wall, and we'll come on to that in a bit. It's an opportunity for you to reflect, okay, he said I can do this and I can't do that. That tells me a bit about Nick. And also then it means, well, why did I want to cross that boundary? What, made, what was in me that made me want to to do that. And so as we get better in setting boundaries, each of us should, um, should get clearer in who we are. Jan and I have had a lot of fun over the years taught, uh, teaching um, pre-marriage courses and marriage courses. And uh, it's great when you have um, two young people who are about to get married and the wedding plans are going on and everything is rosy and you know the, the bliss of eternity together is there, yet to be... Uh, to be sort of uh, inflicted with reality. Um, and uh, what, one of the biggest shocks 
about getting married and meeting someone is not what's wrong in the other person. It's actually, oh my word, I was fine on my own. I had all these things which were perfectly normal and I could do what I wanted and no one said anything because I was in my room and the fact that it was a tip and, you know, all the different sort of idiosyncrasies, they're normal, they're fine, you know, you can do it. But when you get married, suddenly you're faced up against with someone who doesn't think that's normal. And so one of the joys in getting married, it's like having a mirror held up, reflecting back to you, hopefully, you know, with love and nice words, but nonetheless quite crystal clear picture of actually what is the, the truth about you and how do your idiosyncrasies. So 28 years? So I've been married for 28 years, still learning so much about me, and, uh, and that is the shocking thing. Um, but that's, uh, yeah, because I was perfect in my own eyes. It was uh, <laughs> a bit of a rude awakening, wasn't it? I still struggle that I might not be. Um, but you have a choice when you're faced with that mirror, when someone else's view of you, you have a choice. And sadly, lots of people go into denial. I'm not the one with the problem. Actually, you're the one with the problem. And if anyone needs to change around here, it's you. And I'm going to be right here. When you've sorted yourself out, you can come back. And uh, how good is that working out for you? So you have a choice when you do that. So you can, you know, just go into denial and blame, and that will just cause pain and anguish and separation. Um, or you can start to accept that there is something there and, and work together to how you do that. I'm going to read a story from my new favorite book. Um, so Keep Your Love On by Danny Silk. Has anyone read this? A couple of people. Has anyone bought it and not read it yet? So um, it's not a must-read, but it is. Um, I would strongly urge you all to read this, and uh, we, we just want to facilitate as many people to get the, the great teaching all about relationships, and uh, I'm nicking some sections on the bit at the back about boundaries. Um, so if you would like some, then we're very willing to order some for you just to make that a bit easier. So see Jan at the end, and, uh, and we can order that. But there's a story here about a married couple um, and the challenges they had with boundaries. So I'm just going to hopefully get the right page. So this is one of Danny's stories about a woman who decided she could no longer contribute to any disrespectful conversation again. The next time she and her husband had a disagreement that led to rage and intimidation, she stopped and announced, I'll be glad to finish this conversation when it becomes respectful. I can see you're upset. As long as it stays respectful, I'll stay. He continued to explode, so she walked out. He was stunned at first, then angry. He felt powerless and punished. He sat and fumed in anger. His wife waited a full hour. Before she returned to the room, she'd remained calm and self-controlled because she had a genuine desire to resolve the conflict. She came in and asked him if he wanted to have the conversation again. After seeing his wife consistently behave the same way in their various disagreements, this husband became convinced that she really was never going to participate in a disrespectful conversation again. And he also began to believe that if she could control herself, so could he. If at any time she said, I'll be happy to have this conversation if it stays respectful, he started to adjust his tone and choice of words so that he could keep her in the room while they worked through the conflict. This couple now has a new standard for conversation when they have any conflict, a standard they both prefer. Good communication and healthy boundaries gave these two adults what they needed to stay powerful, to maintain their connection. They have more trust, more honor, and more love for one another. Their conflicts are, res are resolved in a way where both feel safe, but only because they were both willing to change. And the more we encounter others, Honoring the boundaries we've set for our lives, the more they will know that they can trust us with their lives. Setting and honoring boundaries is essential to creating a relational culture of respect, honor, and trust, and love with the people around us. So I just thought that was excellent. And it's pointed out there that both of them needed to change. She needed to not accept the rage that was coming at her and to say, actually, no, I don't need to listen to this. And then he had a choice whether he changed and stop raging and realizing that wasn't actually communicating very well, or whether he just carried on. So 
as I'm saying, really, by setting good boundaries, it's good for me, but also it's good for you. And as I respect myself and as I require respect from those around me, that will cause us both to grow and to have more respect. Another thing that's really helped me through the years as uh, I read the Bible is you don't see the word boundaries very often, but often the Old Testament uses the story of the people of Israel, the story of the people of God, and the various cities that they're involved with. And it's often struck me about city walls. We live in urban sprawl, so we don't have you know, the, the city walls. If you go to various historic places, you can see the old wall, but often the, the road goes straight through it and the cities spread around it. But in times past, cities needed walls, and walls were there for a lot, of, a lot of reasons. And a lot of stories in the Bible do mention city walls and the gates. And often in these stories, you see that the walls were being attacked, ramparts built against them, they were being broken down, um, or that they were just there as a reminder. And the city walls really defined the city. They said what was in and what was out. They set a boundary for what was allowed and what wasn't. They preserved the identity and they also brought security. But it wasn't just that a city had walls. If a city just has walls, then everyone stays inside and slowly starves to death. So cities need gates as well as walls. And we've got to remember that because sometimes we think city walls, and we, we, we get the picture of walls, and a wall is just a, a fixed, rigid structure. But gates are controlled by the city. Gates are there to allow what can come through and when it can come through, what goes out and what comes in. So in the story of the people of Jericho, and uh, sorry, the, the people of Israel going and attacking Jericho, said the city was tightly shut up, nothing went out and nothing came in. So that's not a healthy functioning city, is it? That's a t city under siege. And it's very clear then that thieves scale the walls and climb in over the walls, but those who respect the city go through the gates. So really, I found that quite helpful. And just any time you read in the Old Testament and you come across a story with, with city walls, start to reflect on yourself. What does this mean? Is there a picture or something? So Nehemiah, they went back to build up the walls. And uh, the city had been broken. All the exiles were in, in uh, Babylon. And they were coming back and starting to rebuild the old city. And the first job was to build up the city walls. And the peoples round about were quite critical and just mocking and so you'll never amount to anything but they just kept on working. And it was what happened to that people as the walls grew up. They grew in their sense of identity. They suddenly became, no, we're not some rabble that's just escaped from slavery. We are actually the people of God, and something changed in them as the city walls went up. So I think that's a good picture, but I'm quite cautious that we really learn the difference between walls and boundaries. Healthy boundaries are clearly marked, so you know where it is. It's not some sort of you know, flimsy thing that you could ignore. But I like to think of it more as a chain-link fence rather than a three-meter-high concrete with barbed wire on top that you can't see anything through. And we need different levels of boundaries for different people. Some people just a little reminder. Oh, sorry, yep, I've noticed that. Right, thank you. Others need a bit more of a firm reminder. And other people actually need cattle probs and barbed wire and say, stay back, you haven't learned it yet. So, you know, we do need boundaries. But what I'm saying is that you're actually looking at the person that you're having a boundary with, whereas a wall really is much more, you know, speak to the hand sort of thing, as the Americans say, that it's, I don't want to know, I'm not interested, this is about a wall, can't you see the wall? And the difference between a wall and a boundary is that a wall is rigid, it's permanent, and there's no opportunity for communication through that, no chance of connection. People often, quite understandably, put up walls because of hurt, of abuse, of offense, or of burnout. But ultimately, walls are things that are rigid and people hide behind out of fear. And to try and remove a wall causes a lot of pain. It's very difficult to, to bring a wall down without any, uh, any um, damage inflicted. And some people have lived behind walls for so long that they really don't see them anymore. And it's just, well, that's me. That's just how I am. And the fact that their world is quite small and people don't get that close has become so normal that they really have just lived in it and not very good. And my huge heart is that we don't do that. If we have got walls, then we want to create a safe culture and say, 
it's okay, you can come out, let's find a way around or through that wall and let's find a way to do that. But we want to do that in a way that's safe and so if you've needed to hide behind a wall because of pain or abuse or, or brokenness, then we need to look to God for whatever you need to fix that and heal that, but also a way to preserve this sense of self and this boundary without it needing to be, as I say, three meters of solid concrete. Okay. Yeah, so just emphasizing that in my notes here. So we want not rigid walls, we want flexible boundaries, and boundaries that you look at and examine. Um, yeah, so I knew there was a good point in there. Can't send me on writing. Um, so we want boundaries that are based on love and are flexible. So remembering our context of love here, not walls that have been built up out of fear and which bring division. Okay, I knew it was worth looking for. <laughs> okay. And as I say, always when we're setting boundaries, we're remembering that it's for the purpose of relationships. So a wall doesn't need a relationship. It's you're out there and you can stay there, I'm in here, and I'll carry on with my own sweet thing. Thank you very much. But we don't want that. We want relationships, and that's why we need healthy boundaries. So healthy boundaries. I've got a, a definition here. Personal boundaries are guidelines, rules, or limits that a person creates to identify him or her that are reasonable, safe, and permissible ways for other people to behave around them and how they will respond if you cross the boundary. So guidelines, rules, or limits that a person creates to identify him or her that where reasonable, safe, and permissible ways for other people to behave around them and how they'll respond if someone oversteps those boundaries. And boundaries are two-way. It's not just you know, a, a thing that is there between us. A boundary is, what of me am I going to share with you? And what of my time, energy, resources am I willing to give to you? So what am I giving out the way? And what of you am I going to let into my life? What demands am I going to allow you to make on me? What influence am I going to allow you to have in shaping my thoughts, feelings, my environment? So it's remembering that. And sometimes have these pictures one of them is of a garden. A garden needs certain things it needs. It needs heat and it needs light for, for plants to grow, um, but it also needs to keep predators out. It needs to keep predators. You might not think of slugs as a predator, but if you're a gardener, they are one serious predator. So it doesn't matter whether it's a slug or it's birds or it's rabbits or whether it's just bulls trampling over everything that you've tended. Um, you need to keep some things out, but you need to allow other things in. And so we're looking at our lives, we want to have that dual sense of what do I allow in and what do I keep out. And really emphasizing that healthy boundaries are not selfish. This is not self-protection. This is not just me looking after me. It really is getting myself thinking again of a garden. I want something good growing in my garden so that when you do have a need, I've actually got something to offer. I'm not a burnt-out wreck who can only look after myself but I've managed my world well, and I now have something good that I can help you with, whether it's time, energy, resources, wisdom, insight. And often think about that picture when you're on an airplane and you're doing all the politely listening to the stewardess as she goes through the routine. One of the things they always say is if about the oxygen masks, put your own mask on first before you help someone else. And a lot of Christians really could do with that sort of plastered everywhere. Look after what God's given you, and then you'll be in a good position to look after someone else. And often we don't. We can see someone else's problem and not realizing that we're gasping for breath and actually going down the pan as well. So put your own mask on, uh, oxygen mask on and then look after someone else after that. Look after me so that I'm in a health, healthy place to look after someone else. I'm going to read a, a story from Mark chapter 6, and it's verses 45 to 51. And your Bibles will say this is Jesus walking on water. But actually, I'm going to talk about everything except Jesus walking on water. And really what strikes me is this context that other people's needs don't determine my response. So I'm going to read through the story and just have a think about, about that. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he'd taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. 
When evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that the, they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass them by. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw it was him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it's I, don't be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. Now, quite reasonably, we're all sort of staggered by the fact that Jesus just casually walked on the water in the middle of the storm. But there's something else really shocking in here. Jesus, it said, dismissed the crowd and then went up to pray. It's always hard to, you, there's a bit of interpretation and a bit of sort of being careful with the license of, of what, you, what you make out of this. But he sent them up to pray and then evening came. So actually, what time did he dismiss them? Don't know, five or six o'clock? Don't know, they've been there all day. So, and then evening came. When would you say evening was? Eight or nine o'clock? And he saw his friends struggling at about eight or nine o'clock in the middle of the evening, okay? And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them. Now, fourth watch, the six o'clock in the evening to six o'clock in the morning, split into four watches. The fourth watch is that bit three in the morning till six in the morning. So he left them from somewhere mid-evening till near enough dawn, struggling against a storm. What sort of friend is he? What sort of savior is that? Jesus clearly was prioritizing needs, his needs, against the needs of the guys in the boat. And it was just shocking. And not only did he wait that long, he meant to pass them by. <laughs> what did he think they were going to do? You know, so see you on the other side. I'll have breakfast ready, you know. So he was not, their need was great. They were struggling. These were, you know, trained fishermen struggling in a boat. This was one serious storm. And Jesus didn't immediately drop everything at nine o'clock in the evening. I think, well, you know, nice to have two hours with your father, but I need to go and help the boys. Um, he left them a long time still struggling. And, and I find that both shocking but also reassuring that they were in need. Jesus did not immediately meet their need. He looked for what his was to do, and that was to spend time with Father before he went out there. And who knows? I mean, Jesus lived as a man amongst us. Who knows what would have happened if he'd only had one hour with God and then tried to, oh, if I've got a boat here, you know, what do we do? But how do we know what happened in, in Jesus' time with Father there? But clearly it was more important that he spent time on the mountain praying and then had all the miracle resource to help them by the time he got there. Okay, and so it's important for us to see that we don't always have to jump in and meet need. And actually some of us do need to learn to say no. And uh, we, we get into all sorts of trouble when we do this. Some people are a little bit too good at saying no. And actually these are great walls. And for some of you, come out, you could actually say yes now and again, and, uh, you know, but others are really just not learnt this. And you can say no, and you don't need to explain why. And some of you just need to have little lines that you can practice. Can you come and help do this? Everyone's, everyone's going to be there. No, why not? I'm practicing boundaries. And uh, you just <laughs> learn that you can just say no, just to say no. And actually, some of you need to hear yourself say no to some of the scary people around you who you've always... I can say no to them, but oh, I don't think I can say no to them. So learn just to practice saying no. Not just, you know, we're all going to be around saying, saying no to everyone, but actually to hear yourself set your own boundary, to hear yourself communicate your needs to someone else. Okay, and so always as we're doing this, I feel like I'm going, saying the same thing in many different ways, as we learn to set boundaries, what Jesus de demonstrated is that he identified his own needs and he gave time to that before he looked to meet the needs of others. And we have to value ourselves and we have to know what we need. So do you know what you need? Do you know how much time you need for rest, for study, for fun, for you know, chats with you know, friends or, or deeper meaningful chats? Do you know what you need in terms of study? Do you know what you need in terms of heaven encounters? Do you know what you need in terms of just, you know, food and relaxation? Um, and 
have you worked that out so that when people do come with requests, you don't, as I say, have to be rigid, but you do have to measure what will this do to what I've already prioritized. And so we actually do need to think about what, what we do, because if we don't, then we do get burnout, and everyone ends up with Mr. Grumpy, which uh, I don't think that's in the Bible either. So you need to be asking yourself some questions. How late do you still answer the phone? So I think when Andy talks about pastoral people, he says, pastoral people, they're the ones who will always answer the phone at three in the morning. Just try it. <laughs> I don't think I ever answer the phone at three in the morning. So uh, sorry if that's a disappointment to, to some of you. Um, and really emphasizing that actually it is okay to look after yourself, but that it's all in the context of relationships. So I'm going to look a bit now at some unhealthy boundaries, because sometimes if you just talk, we all get the concept, we all like the idea, but actually in the nitty-gritty of life, where does, that, uh, where does that really fit? What does that look like? And as I say, I'm drawing on my experience as a, a pastor in Christian, Christian world, but also as a GP. Um, so I, I did think that, you know, would people be worried that I'm pointing the finger at them and sort of choosing their stories? Hopefully you won't feel I'm pink pointing the finger because I've chosen a story about you. I haven't. Um, at least I don't think I have. Um, what's that disclaimer they always say in the films that any association with any characters is, uh, is purely fictional? Um, so, uh, disclaimer, disclaimer. Um, but unhealthy boundaries, and I've sort of grouped them together just to, to sort of help explain them. The first unhealthy boundary I wanted to talk about is taking responsibility of others, taking on other people's responsibility. And there are different people, and we can all recognize busybodies. And what a busybody does is they go looking for other people's problems to sort of delve into. And, uh, and clearly, that's not good. But equally well, there are the agony aunts, those people who are just everyone knows, oh, you can go and spill out your rubbish on so-and-so because they just listen forever. Um, and you end up being overloaded and burnt out with other people's problems. Another unhealthy way of taking responsibility is by doing things for them. You could ask someone but it's easier to do it yourself. Or I could ask them, but I'm going to do a better job. Now, that might be pride, which wouldn't be good. It might actually be reality. You might actually be able to do a far better job. But by doing something that someone else was meant to do denies them the possibility of growing, of learning, of making mistakes, and of putting it right. So by not doing something for someone isn't you being mean, is, by gi is giving them an opportunity to grow and flourish. The next group of unhealthy boundaries I've called abdicating responsibility. That's where someone, it's not you taking responsibility from someone, it's the person themselves just falling apart in front of you. You know, they clearly have stuff to do, but they just arrived at your house, uh, an emotional wreck, and I can't do it, I can't do it. Um, and while we've got to remember, can you put the other one, David? Um, that some people do need help, a lot of people actually need either encouraging or admonishing. Um, and so we've got to see that some people, you know, when they're falling apart in front of you, actually, so what are you going to do about that? Reflect back to them that it's their responsibility to do that. Some people might not fall apart emotionally, but they are definitely ignoring the problem. And you can see what needs to be done, and you can see that if they don't do that, then X, Y, and Z, terrible things are going to happen. And again, the temptation can be, oh, just get out of the way, let me get on with it. And you can take away what someone's to do because they've abdicated their responsibility. Others just don't see it. They didn't realize that there was a problem, didn't realize they had to do something, um, or they see it and won't do it, and they endlessly fail to prioritize. And so again, where do they fit in the encouraging or admonishing? Okay, we need to learn the right way of discerning that. And just in that encouraging and admonishing, it's good to encourage. And if you say to someone, you can do this, and they say, yeah, it's great, I can. But the next time they don't, you begin to think, hmm, perhaps that's not faint-hearted, doesn't believe they can. Perhaps that's a bit more lazy bones, doesn't want to do it. And so you can start off encouraging and then measure what the response is as a guide rather than going and admonishing straight away. Because again, if you admonish someone who's faint-hearted, you're just going to crush them and make them feel, feel worse. Um, yeah, that's right. And one way of sort of 
helping in a situation you've come across a catastrophe waiting to happen, one way to approach that is rather than telling someone is to ask good questions. Have you noticed that there's no one next week to do the projector? Have you noticed that there's only one steward on this morning? Or have you noticed that you promised to make tea and it's now five o'clock and I'm getting quite hungry? You, you can sort of remind someone by asking good questions. And questions are good if they remind someone of their responsibility, but they also give an opportunity to respond. It's reminding someone that they are powerful and that they can do it, and you're not taking away that value from them. But it's also saying other questions, are you managing? Do you need any help? So just seeing a problem and knowing it's someone's responsibility, the response isn't just to fold your arms and say, hmm, we'll see how long it takes before that falls apart. It's stepping in. If you've seen something and someone hasn't, you know, it is expressing love by going towards them, but you honor them by asking good questions rather than taking over from them. Okay, so we've got taking on responsibility for others, not good. Abdicating responsibility, not good. Um, or just the other part of just how to help people. I've often I've been a, a parent for a while now, 26 years, and I often think of children. When you think about babies, they definitely need help. You can't encourage a baby to change its nappy or rebuke it if it's pooed once again. So seeing children go through all those various stages has helped me have a lot of grace for people because people are at different stages. But you do have to deal with people in different ways as time goes on and as people grow up. If you always keep a baby as a baby, never expect it to do anything, then sadly society is full of lots of adult children who you know, might be 25 and have you know, a fantastic income but all they've learned to do is how to be amazing on the latest PlayStation game and not really take responsibility for their lives. But whose, whose fault is that? Was that their fault or was that not being well-parented? So we've got to see helping other people as a way, as an uh, analogy of that, a picture of that is of how we deal with children and deal with them differently as time goes on to allow them to grow. And it doesn't have to be children. You can act in, you can keep people as children in your workplace. So if someone's inexperienced, if you're always sort of dismissing them and putting them down and just doing it for them or giving them very basic rules and just say, just do it and, you know, don't ask, just, just listen, then you're not empowering them to grow and develop. So we can see that same poor parenting in the workplace or in, uh, in education. Okay, another group of poor, unhealthy boundaries are other people's agendas. So when people come to you and they expect of you, um, and this is one that I've heard a lot in, in my world at work, um, parents who come, so like grandparent figures who come into the parents' house and they commit the family, I've booked a holiday and we're all going. And uh, the, the implication is, is that I've paid for my ticket and I want you to quickly sign up and here's the website and you pay your money. And that's completely you know, overridden the respect for that family and what they might want to do with their time, even the assumption that the children might want, you know, grandparents along at all. You know, do they? You, you as a parent, would dearly love to be there in every family holiday forever and ever, um, or perhaps you wouldn't. But, you know, it's not yours to make that call. And if you are putting your expectations on someone else, then your agenda is setting an unhealthy boundary. Or it can work the other way around, and I've seen lots of grandparents who feel abused because um, there's the assumption that, well, I've got a new job, you're going to look after the kids. Or, you know, my job finishes at six and the kids after school finishes at five, so every day, you know, you're going to be there. And it's all that assuming and not respecting. And the other thing that I see in that sort of scenario is what I've called boundary creep. And that's where you've set a boundary, say, yep, I'm happy to help look after your children, I'm happy to do that on Wednesday each week, um, but then that mission creep happens, and so long as it's not just one day a week, it's two, three, and pretty soon you're a full-time child carer um, and, and actually getting pretty worn out and burnt out by it. Um, or, you know, these have been all real examples recently, so I'm not picking on children or grandparents or anything like that, but family can lose their house for whatever reason and end up going to grandparents, and they move in, and it's just for a few weeks but that few weeks is never a few weeks, is it? And, you know, it goes on and on and on. And it's very difficult for that initial, yep, we can help you just get back on your feet to not end up being a permanent situation. 
Well, then those families, they come into your home, but they come in with their own rules and expectations. So again, you know, grandparent figures who end up feeling sidelined in their own home because the kids run around, do everything they like, they're pulling things off the walls, they're tramping mud in, there's noise, and you actually no longer feel that your own home is a safe place to be and you want to get out. Okay, so boundary creep isn't good. Another sort of heading for unhealthy boundaries is what I've called consumers. And consumers really are one-way relationships. They have needs you're going to help. And it really is just seeing how many of your relationships are what I call two-way. Can you express your needs, express your heart, express your, your vulnerable feelings, and expect that to be honored, respected, and, and looked after? Or is it only that it's the other person's needs that are valued? Yeah, 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 whatever. Are you going to help me? And people are very quick to take, take, take. And that can either be just very, um, very bold and very obvious, but actually more damaging uh, are what Danny Silk calls the seagulls. They just sort of peck a little bit, but they come back and they peck a bit more, and it can be a little bit over a long period of time. And that starts to erode your sense of self, and it's eroding this boundary because respect has been broken a little bit at a time. Okay, so that's all that I've got there about unhealthy boundaries. So tips for, set, uh, for setting good boundaries. Tips for healthy boundaries. Set clear boundaries and communicate them. It's no good you just sitting, right, this is what I'm going to do and that's what I'm going to do. If you don't tell anyone, then they're going to step on your toes all the time and you're going to feel hurt and frustrated. So you need to set good boundaries and communicate them. Because avoiding confrontation, just thinking, well, I'll just wait, and I'm sure they'll notice. I'll just sort of keep quiet, and they're going to get it. Um, that only leads to stress and pain and is not a healthy recipe. Another tip for having healthy boundaries is connect to people who respect themselves and who respect you. It may be that lots of your, lots of your relationships have unhealthy boundaries, and if that's a pattern that you've slipped into, it's a huge challenge to do that all at once. But if you fa start finding one or two people that you can have a respectful relationship with, then that's going to help you do that more and more frequently with others of your relationships. So connect to healthy people who respect you and respect themselves. Mention consumers. Keep clear boundaries with consumers. If they're not offering anything of themselves, you have to start to limit how much of you they get. Take responsibility for poor boundary setting. If you've allowed people to consume you, if you've been one of those yeah, 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 whatever, whatever, and you've never said no to anyone. Don't blame them for the fact that you're burnt out. You need to take responsibility for the fact that you didn't set good boundaries. If you have ended up bitter and hurt and there's pain there, clearly there needs to be you know, healing and there needs to be forgiveness. But it's your responsibility to put that right. You can't put that on someone else and just go back into blame. You did this and you did that. I'm so sorry, I never knew. Well, you should have known. Um, no, it's not blaming other people for your poor boundaries. It's taking responsibility and then looking to put it right. Exercising forgiveness is the only way really to, to work through that. And then you've got to practice. And if you haven't set good boundaries and now you're beginning to set good boundaries, you're going to come across some shocked and surprised people. But, but you've, you've always done that. Well, probably so, but now it's going to be different. And you've got to help people make the transition. And again, it's doing it with love so you're not suddenly being rigid and ruthless, but you're communicating clearly what your expectations are. You can also start to learn to tell yourself and to tell others by actually communicating what you will do. So again, it's very easy to see this as a negative. No, 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 no. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. But actually, a better way to do that and communicate is saying what you will do. So I will do this and I will do that. And pretty soon it becomes clear that, okay, you're communicating what you will do and therefore it's fairly obvious what you won't do. So you can do this. No, I have set aside time to be with my wife on that evening. No, I'm actually planning to do something then. And you don't actually need to justify or explain your boundaries. Sometimes you can say, sorry, I'm not available that night. You don't need to tell anyone why. This is part of respecting yourself. They may not understand your boundaries. They may not, you know, what's wrong with you? Well, I'm sorry you don't understand, but 
I'm not available. And so you can communicate that without explaining it. Because if you feel you're having to justify, sometimes that, that means the other person, they've got something over you. Perhaps you're feeling not as powerful as them, and, and they're the big person, and you're the little person. No, this is all about recognizing your identity as a child of God, and you're able to stand strong in what God's telling you to do and communicate it clearly to others without having to justify it. You can help communicate. So by, if you want to, you know, giving them a bit of chat explaining why, then that helps them learn a bit more about you. But it comes because you've chosen to do that rather than you feeling you've got to justify every boundary that you've set. And again, I'm wanting to emphasize this idea of it being flexible. We respond to people. This isn't automatically applying the rules. So you can just set a boundary that, well, I never do that. And there clearly are some things that you should never do. But there are lots of things that you don't usually do. But actually, this situation is a bit different. In this situation, I need to respond differently. And so what's nice about a wall is it's just there. Everyone knows it's there. You don't need to think. People know not to ask because they've got this, this wall. But that, again, is much more of a barrier, and it doesn't allow the flexibility and the response to situations. And it may be that something comes up, and actually you do need to change your plans. Something might be happening that needs a different response. So we like walls, and we like rules, because we don't need to think. But actually what God's calling us to is to think and to respond. Father, what do you think in this situation? What's the right thing to do here? And it may be that we need to sort of take a step aside from what we usually do. So, you know, Monday's usually my day off, but on this day, you know, I clearly need to, to help here and do something different. And so we treat people differently depending on their identity, depending on their needs, and depending on what we see Father doing. And this is always remembering how Jesus operated. He didn't do any more, nor any less, than what he saw Father do. Another tip is to expect respect. So if I expect to be treated respectfully, then that's an opportunity for me to show respect. Um, and so expect to be respected. Show love. See people as people, not problems or, or happenings. Um, and perhaps the most important thing in all of this is that we don't have to fix everything. Often when you see problems around you, you see people in difficulty, just like Jesus saw the disciples in the boat you could say that is, you know, these guys could die in that storm. You know, we've got to do something. But other people's need doesn't mean to say that I have to jump. And it's really learning this healthy boundary that just because there's need doesn't mean to say that you need to do it. And there's lots of reasons for that. You might not be the best person to deal with that situation. You might just be the one who has the eyes to see. God may have lined up someone else, but someone a bit less confident than you. And if every time there's a need, you jump in to fix it, everyone else thinks, oh, well, we'll just leave it to them because they're always good at these things. You're quietly dying on the inside. Where's everybody else whenever these needs arise? But you never give enough space for someone else to think, hmm, they're not doing it. Perhaps someone else could. And, and so this, you know, those who are so quick to volunteer actually can suppress others. And so just seeing a need doesn't mean to say you have to do it. For all the reasons that I said before, perhaps God's allowing a need because he's teaching a, a greater truth. Perhaps he's allowing something to happen for, for other reasons. But just seeing the need, and perhaps biggest of all, is if we're just so good at fixing, is if we're so good at doing, where's the room for the miraculous? Where's the room for God to step in and for heaven, for heaven to happen? Um, and often when we do see need and we just feel this urge, we've just got to do something, it's often through that curse of the Christian world, guilt, um, which is epitomized by the word should. You know, someone should do something, and there's this urge and pressure that comes upon us. But just because there's a need doesn't mean to say you have to fix it. And we can all look to Father, we can look to God for wisdom in the situation. So it's not, you know, just uh, neglecting or, or abandoning. But really, this is the sort of culmination of all that I want to say. All of these concepts, tools, they're all talking about ways in which we can love well, ways in which we can flourish, ways in which we can be the best me that I can, and you can be the best you that you can. And we truly will reflect Jesus amongst us, and we truly will see the kingdom of heaven. And I want us all to work well with our boundaries, work well at looking after one another and protecting one another and respecting one another, but doing that by saying, actually, I have a need, 
and I would like you to respect that, and either you can help or you can just give me space to get that sorted myself, but this is a boundary and this is something that I need. And then as we work well together, we will see freedom amongst us, we'll see heaven expressed. And this is kingdom. You know, this is what it means for the kingdom of heaven to be here. It's not just seeing kingdom as some, you know, things that happen, you know, praying for the sick and instantly the dead are raised. That is kingdom of heaven. But also having healthy relationships, healthy boundaries, looking after one another's hearts is another way of the kingdom of heaven being expressed amongst us. Amen. Can I pray for us? Father, thank you so much. Thank you for your immense love towards us. God, thank you that you expressed a boundary. You said there's a problem with sin and it needs to be dealt with. And there isn't another way around that except through Jesus. And Father, you deal with us so healthily and so well and you have boundaries. Teach us well how to love one another. Teach us well how to see those areas of our life where people have overstepped a boundary where they have caused pain and hurt and it has caused us to withdraw and father for those of us who are hiding behind walls that we've erected for protection help bring healing there God so those walls can come down for other of us who are just a, a disaster zone where we don't know when to say no to anyone strengthen and bring courage bring insight and bring clarity and father above all let your love be so evidenced amongst us that the world around just flocks to be part of the good thing that you're birthing with us. Go, I just speak your blessing over us now in Jesus' name. Amen.